Hi, I'm Tara. Hi, I'm Michelle. Welcome to our podcast, Books and Beyond. On this episode, we have spoken to Tashan Mehta, the author of The Liar's Weave. She's a speculative fiction author and this conversation was super fun because she's our age. Yeah, and that's so cool. And because she's also been a mentor at our retreat, I was so looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, we really bonded with her when she came to the retreat and... She also lives in Goa where both of us really want to move to. Yeah, and I really was looking forward to this conversation Tara because I loved the story that she narrated at the retreat about the ant and the grasshopper and she actually narrated it for us. Yeah, I mean it's such a macabre tale and I think you guys will really enjoy the narration. What I also really wanted to know is how she deals with rejection and failure because I read that she wrote the first paragraph of her second novel 52 times. Yeah, and she even mentions how the book still haunts her like she talks about the character like sitting with her on the same bed and just like you know like haunting her my god yeah and you know what was the best part about her being so transparent about it is because a lot of writers do not talk about rejection and failure right yeah and so that it was really interesting to find out her perspective um i really wanted her on the show because i love speculative fiction and i know that she has a lot of book recommendations so i was dying to know what she would recommend for me to read and i hope that you guys also get some good interesting reads out of this So without further ado let's just get into the conversation. So hi everyone welcome to our podcast Books and Beyond. We're really excited today to have with us author Tashan Mehta. She's the author of The Liar's Weave and she's written a short story called The Rule Book for Creating a Universe which is in the anthology title Magical Women. Welcome Hi, I'm so excited to be here today mainly because this is recording and this is an exciting new experience. But hi. Welcome Tashan. So Tashan, uh one thing that we wanted our listeners to know is um could you tell our listeners a little bit about what speculative fiction is and what is the Indian speculative fiction scene in India? Speculative fiction is a really large genre. essentially it deals with horror it deals with magic realism it deals with science fiction it deals with fantasy and it's this large catch all term which basically says kind of what if all of the genres that are in between like slipstream they kind of fall into the same overall umbrella of speculative fiction and i think the indian speculative fiction scene is actually kind of vast and i think what's really exciting about this genre and what they do is that they're pulling on traditions and they're pulling on ways of seeing that you wouldn't traditionally encounter in the west and i think that's why this is particularly exciting because i think the way in which we view the world is already a little bit twisted there's a lot of fantasy in how we view reality and what reality is yeah, true yeah so speculative fiction therefore is just extremely ripe in the subcontinent i think So we were wondering how did the speculative fiction genre appeal to you as a writer like you know to explore mm. the themes like did you always know you want to write in this genre So I didn't I didn't even know I was writing in the genre oh. <laughs> until until Jagannath read it and Siva Priya was like this is speculative oh, fiction really? and I said oh how interesting okay. um but I think I think that should give you an idea of just how vast that genre is Basically if you're looking for near complete freedom um and the ability to mismatch any genre really speculative is mostly where you would fall into it's kind of i think 
publishers may get upset about this, but I kind of think it's the easy term publishers give to a book that defies any definitions. And more often than not, it is speculative fiction. It has that element of fantasy. It has literariness in it. It has character journeys, but also has a really large universe and a large idea behind it. So, yeah, I mean, it seems like it's a very broad mm. term. Um, yeah. So could you tell our listeners a little bit about your book and the themes that you explored in your book? Yes. God, it's been a while since I've talked about it. Um, so the book I wrote is called The Liar's Weave. And it follows a Parsi boy, Zahan Merchant, in 1920s Mumbai. Uh, but it's not quite our world. It's a world where birth charts are real. So I'm assuming most Indian audience members will be familiar with a birth chart. But yeah. just in case you aren't, um, it's basically where they write your futures in the stars and they tell you what will happen. Except in this universe, they do actually come true. But Zahan Merchant is born without a birth chart and it gives him an ability to change reality with his lies. And what I found really, really fun um, in this book is ultimately as a writer, you're creating a landscape out of words. But I also had to create an invisible landscape because Zahan Merchant's power has a catch. Mm. If you know what he's saying is a lie, you can't see it. I love that. It was so much fun to write because consistently in every chapter in the book, you have the text sort of peeling away from what one person can see and what one person can't. And that friction and that tension and the problems that that creates, both for the characters and for me as a writer, was a lot of fun uh, to play with and explore. I think speculative fiction just let me do whatever I want, which is great. And uh, I really like it the way you mentioned fun because a lot of writers have this pressure to appear serious mm. and literary and it's just <laughs> that you enjoy writing it, which is so cool. Um, so like, uh, how do you come up with the themes for, you know, your work in mm. general? Like, what are your inspirations? And like, in particular, like, I really, really like the concept of, mm. you know, if uh, you know about the lie, you, yeah. can, you can't see it, but everybody else can. That kind of blew my mind. Yeah. So how did you come up with that? So that one was actually because someone very intelligently pointed out to me that if he could lie about anything, why was he not lying about saying being the prime minister of the world? And I was oh. like, well, no one's the prime minister of the world, but you get what I mean. Yeah. Um, and I thought to myself, well, no, because this power is not an easy way out. It's heavy and it's complicated. Um, and I loved that no matter what he lied about, he would never actually see the effects or the full repercussions of his lie. He'd never be able to fully live it. And I loved what that did for him as a character. Because I think Zahan Merchant is kind of interested in power in a way that his family consistently tells him is very wrong. And that became a really interesting pull and tension um, for him as a person. How would he choose? What would he lie about? And why would he lie? And how... If he keeps lying, he will get more and more distant from reality as it is because he'll never be able to experience it. But Michelle, coming back to your really fantastic question on where do ideas come from? So actually, I found with my ideas, they're just kind of all around me. At any point in time, there are about seven ideas in my head wow. jostling for space. Wow. <laughs> um, and then at some point, I just start stitching what them together. mind you have. <laughs> But what I actually found is it got too much for readers. Um, my head is a very wild and confusing space. <laughs> I hope none of you ever have to actually be in it. Ever. It sounds extremely fascinating. Uh, yeah. <laughs> fascinating is a very kind term, I think. Uh, but I think that what it got to was that point of finding a thread. 
or a way in which to take readers through this fantastical and large landscape. So I wake up, there's seven ideas in my head. Uh, just to give you an idea, there's an anthology coming out, uh, Third Eye, uh, in which my characters in this short story that I've written for it, each person experiences a different idea of time. Wow. Uh, and then writing that out, and that seed of that idea kind of just appears. And then the shape of it kind of blossoms through writing at least three drafts. It takes about three drafts for the shape to come fully formed. And then after that, it's about how will the reader experience this journey? How do I organize the information? How do I take them through it? How is it both powerful, engaging um, and fun? to write because <laughs> I think fun is a very important element yeah, yeah fun is fun really is there was a point at which I sat down and I got told a lot of things that you need to do for the publishing industry and I tried to do them like and what? like just simplify um, all really really good advice but when I did it I just did it really badly really badly like people were oh, just no. backing away <laughs> from my texts and going no Tasha no like it didn't work for you basically it just wasn't my mm. style and what I had to find and what I had to understand is to do what I do which is the fun wild crazy ideas while keeping the reader with me and while understanding how the reader can stay in that space with me yeah, that, yeah. I mean that's so important yeah. to engage the reader as well yeah. yeah so that actually brings me to my next question hmm. so Michelle and I read your scroll article about yeah. writing your second book yes uh, the metaphor you use to describe you know how you created that draft and then you hmm. said you said uh, uh, like the draft is born but is dead yeah the oh draft God. that is born but is dead we that book that was line. torture <laughs> <laughs> and that you wrote the first paragraph 52 times. So we wanted to know, you know, how was it uh, going through that journey and how did you deal with the disappointment of creating something that you didn't use? Honestly, very badly. I was very tempted at one point to just hide under the bed and not stare at a blank page ever oh, no. again. But I think it's an experience all e authors go through. And I think the ones that have done this long enough just know that it's part of the game. It's just how long it takes to get something out there. I wrote at the end of that article that I'd battled with that second book so long. And when I gave it up and I started on the third one, the second book came to me. Um, and she, my character was sitting at the edge of the bed. And I, I love like, that line too. Yeah, it's right there in front of me. It's the right way in which to tell it. It wasn't. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I did another draft okay. um, and it didn't work. And two months back. A new way in which to write it has appeared once again. Um, and I think this one may actually be it. Fingers crossed. Hopefully we don't do another podcast and I tell you that it isn't. Uh, but I think what all of those drafts that 52 times of writing made me realize is that very much like real life, um, a story is all there. It's all about who is looking, how they're looking and what they're looking at. So choosing the voice, choosing the character and choosing the angle and choosing the movement between those angles all becomes extremely cru crucial. So my story has never changed in all of these drafts. It's just whose perspective I'm telling it from and how I'm telling it that becomes really, really crucial to make this come alive. Yeah, and what we actually liked about the article was that, you know, we know that a lot of writers go through that, but not everyone talks about it. So we loved how candid you were about it. Guys are so kind. <laughs> Thank you. I don't I don't know any other way to talk about it, to be honest, because I think I think reading a lot of the books that I've severely admired recently, like Babu Bangladesh by Numer Chaudhary or even Latitudes of Longing by Shubhangi Swaroop. I've realized talking to Shubhangi and reading about Numer's journey 
that all it really is is doing it over and over again until you get it right. And when I talk to people at workshops or when I meet any new authors, I genuinely because they feel so lost because they haven't got it right the first time or the second time or the third time they feel that they're not cut out for it and really yeah. the difference between someone who succeeds and people who don't is just the person who succeeds keeps going at it over That's, and over yeah. again hard work yeah so hard much work. hard work yeah so much hard work uh, but like how do you know when something is not working like do you mm. think it's a blessing when a writer actually knows it's not working <laughs> <laughs> it's a deep curse. I love that you asked that actually because I'm I'm writing a third book now that is divided into four novellas and I wrote the second novella and I loved it and it flowed out of me and I've read it again and it doesn't work at all. And I sat on the side and I thought to myself, I could just ignore this piece of information. Maybe it works. I'm not entirely sure. I could just ignore it. But more often than not you know and you know if it's not going to work for you as a reader not you as a writer you as a reader then it's not going to work for another reader and sometimes you can't fix it sometimes you need to give it to another person to say what did you find wrong with it and use their information in order to make it better um but more often than not you do know but <laughs> how do you get that distance to see uh, like to read it as a reader mm. like, and to put your like mm. and to change from your writer's cap to your reader's exactly. cap especially when you're so close to the work true it's very hard um i'm not sure i'm entirely getting it right but i think largely the secret is putting it away for about at least a month if not a month and a half um working on something else so you're not secretly opening the word document and reading paragraphs <laughs> um and then just coming to it with your most irritable self or your most uninteresting unforgiving self yeah. you know when you pick up a book and you can't be bothered and you're just skimming it um give it a little bit of that indifference in there and mark the points where you as a reader just thought oh i don't want to go on anymore and then the book still grasps you that's yeah, the test yeah finding the parts that can still pull you in there or the parts that are losing the reader and that then need to be tweaked and fixed so uh, coming to you know you said that um, reading other people's work mm. informs your own so we wanted to know who are some of the writers that have influenced you and we read that when you were a kid you used to read a lot of spy thrillers which yeah. we found very cute <laughs> yeah so what are the the books that have influenced you in your childhood and you know in school and in college and now that inform your writing hmm So whenever I get asked this question I blank out which is always the worst thing to happen to a writer. Um I would say right now I'm particularly enamored by Italo Calvino, by Invisible Cities, by If on a Winter's Night a Traveler. He's doing a lot of incredible things in form and in language and how he deals with philosophy in form and language and I'm just I have so many stars in my eyes. So I would recommend him extremely highly. Um I'm really impressed by a lot of what is coming out of India, Shubhangi Swarup's Latitudes of Longing, Babu Bangladesh, which comes out of Bangladesh, uh, mm. not India. Because I think they're doing what I deeply admire, that mixing of reality and fact and fiction. Both of those books just have so much in them. So I'm really quite in love um with how they do that. I think Indra Pramit Das was the first person I read and thought to myself my god that person uses language most evocative language ever he can line up like six words in a sentence and that sentence will explode on the page 
Beautifully yeah. done. Really, really beautifully done. I've been meaning to read him for some time. Like, yeah, the I've de- heard the he's the devourers, amazing. The Devourers. Right? Yeah. You should absolutely pick. I highly recommend The Devourers. Um, werewolf stories are not at all my thing or my genre, but this was just completely different. This really shook me. And of course, when I was 18 years old, um, and I still love him, Leo Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. No. I just... I have never been able to fully dissect that book. Mm. It exists as a whole. It just exists near perfectly. And there's no literary device that you can go to saying, ah, that did that or that did that. And I think that's a work of magic and art. Have and you read that, Michelle? No, I haven't. I'm just uh, like, uh, you know, intimidated by the size of yeah, the book. It's, it's huge. Yeah. It's huge. It's one of those things that you can do best when you're 18 and you have nothing else to right. do because you can just sit in bed and read. Um, but it was really, really transformative. Beautiful book. So, uh, like, talking about books that, you know, have influenced you now, mm-hmm. but, like, we were just talking about the retreat that we had in August and, you know, the just the memorable story mm-hmm. that you shared with us from your childhood, the ant and the grasshopper. Mm-hmm. Would you please share it for our listeners also? And, and for those of us who don't know, uh, Tashan was, has been a mentor with us at our retreats uh, twice now and it's been absolutely fantastic and this story has wowed our participants both times. So, we really want you to share it with us. Thank you. Yeah, had, and, and how it shaped your, you know, childhood or view of stories. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I had so much fun at the Bound Retreats. Thank you for inviting me. My mother's going to kill me when she hears this <laughs> podcast. Um, so the story, The Ant and the Grasshopper, is actually a fairly common fairy tale, but it was told to me by my mother. And I think I emphasized earlier the who is telling the story and therefore how they tell it is very important. And this really proved to be true in this case because my mother's Parsi. She's great, deeply affectionate, loves her children, astonishingly morbid for a relatively <laughs> happy person. And the, all the stories she used to tell us when we were young were extremely morbid. Like there was a child with no leg and nobody wanted to be friends with him and someone was starving oh no. and someone was <laughs> at an orphanage and we used to go to sleep like close to tears but oh no. more or less not. And my dad came to her one day and he was like, Shirin, you just need to tell them a nice like story. Cinderella. Yeah, Beauty like Cinderella. Yeah, a happy story. <laughs> so she told us the ant and the grasshopper, which by the way is a children's tale. So the story of the ant and the grasshopper is that it's summer. And the grasshopper is enjoying the sun, he's smelling the flowers, he's hopping from one grass to another. And there's this tiny little ant and he's full of energy and he's working. He's collecting little sugar cubes and he's putting it in his ant hole. And the grasshopper looks at him and he goes, why are you working? It's summer. You need to just relax and you need to enjoy. And the ant said, um, he said, well, winter is coming. I don't think she used those exact words, but I'm extremely influenced by Game of Thrones. (laughs) Um, And so the grasshopper said, well, winter's a long way off. It's time for you to enjoy the summer and just relax. So that was day one. Then on the second day, the grasshopper looked at him again and still the ant was collecting uh, sugar cubes and still he was storing it away. The grasshopper laughed at him and he said, look, summer will end soon. If you don't enjoy the summer, you won't be able to have all the fun that you need. And the ant said, no, winter is coming. You need to be prepared for the winter. And this went on for all of the summer. The grasshopper made more and more elaborate jokes, laughed at the ant, enjoyed the sun, relaxed, sunbathed. And then, of course, winter came. And when winter came, slowly but surely, all the grass died, all the flowers withered, everything became arid and barren and cold and snow-filled. And the grasshopper just got colder and colder and colder and colder, so cold that he could no longer hop. 
So he hobbled over to the ant and he knocked on his door. And the ant opened the door and there was just this lovely roaring fire and he'd stored all this food for the winter and it looked cozy and it looked warm. And the grasshopper said, please, can you let me in? Give me a couple of moments by that fire and share your food. And the ant said, I'm really sorry. Oh I've collected enough just for me. My I, God. I told you winter was coming. And he closed the door on him. So the grasshopper went away. A couple of days later, the grasshopper turned up again. And he said, can you please let me in? I can't feel my legs anymore. This is awful. I think I'm going to die. Please give me shelter. And the ant said, I am so sorry. I warned you. There isn't enough space. I cannot take care of you. And he closed the door on him again. Until finally the grasshopper knocked again for the last time. And this time he had changed colour. He had gone from this bright verdant green to slightly pale green. And he was looking more and more frozen, I think is the best word. Um, Are you sure your mother told you this yes, story? Yes, I assure you it was in this graphic detail. And he said for the last time, please, I am begging you, please let me in. And perhaps the ant was moved. Perhaps the ant was not. I believe he was not because he said, I'm really sorry. There isn't only enough food for one person. I have to leave you out here. And he closed the door on him. And the grasshopper died. That's, Whoa. yeah. But I mean, that story never gets old. It never gets old. But what I remember, I remember my mother once using this absolutely beautiful description of how those wings grew frozen and how they kind of fell off at some point, the grasshopper's wings. Um, and I'd never really seen a grasshopper, maybe. I just the imagery that it created in my head was so vivid and so bright that I curled up on the bed in a ball and I cried. And I cried the whole night. I wouldn't stop. And my mom was so confused. She was like, this is a story of how you work hard. This is a story of how you should be prepared. It's meant to be a happy story. It's a happy yeah. story of listening to the ant. And I just, I couldn't believe a world in which the ant wouldn't open the door and let the grasshopper in. And I say this in my workshops at the Bound Retreat. That has defined my worldview on writing. It's the story I remember because I often think to myself, who holds the power and how do they choose to wield that power? What is the power dynamic in that room and in that space? Um, my mother will claim that this story was very happy when she said it, but it's a lie, just for the record. But you, you said it so beautifully. I, mean, I remember it like everything. that. Yeah. Oh, you should. My mom has this beautiful voice. She used to be a singer. Um, oh. We used to have this candle lit on the side uh, in front of the picture of Zarasta and it would be all dark. So it was just her voice carrying oh, wow. us. Wow. It was a really serene and beautiful <laughs> picture. It's just the story was extremely <laughs> yeah. morbid. Yeah, but also what I actually liked about it is how your mom had a different takeaway of the story. So how we all can actually interpret stories in different ways. Like it could be, you know, appear sad for someone, but it could also be a happy ending for someone. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think my mom just has a lot of empathy. And so she felt deeply for the grasshopper, but was supposed to identify with the ant, but failed and therefore just talked a lot about the grasshopper. <laughs> So, yeah, I'm really interested to know, are there readers and writers in your family? And mm. is that how you sort of got interested in writing? Yes, absolutely. I think I'm amazingly privileged because my mom used to be a journalist and she oh. wrote a lot. 
And when I started reading, she was desperate for both of her children to love reading. Um, and I kind of acquired reading as a sneaky habit because I once took out a library book and then lost it. So oh no. Swore <laughs> off books for all of time and then started reading on the sly until one day I came to her and I said I finished all the books in the house and so she started buying me more. But what was really beautiful is I got a curated collection. She was able to say you should read this, you should read this, you should read this. She was able to try and guide my reading so that I got as wide a range as possible but I covered all the important text. She did something for my 17th birthday which was really beautiful beautiful where she uh, created a treasure hunt around the house um, with books from each genre wow. with a note wow. for each it was really it's the most magical thing ever so I've been extremely privileged That's amazing. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah in my growing up um, and I think largely I went to Warwick and I studied creative writing because both my parents fought for it at oh. a time yeah at a time when creative writing wasn't seen as exactly. that important yeah. to do they just believed it was formative and important for me to have that experience, which wow, is huge. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, that's a real, real privilege. Yeah. yeah. Like, wow. I wish more parents would think yeah. that way, you know. Yeah. yeah, I got very lucky. I really... And they did it to a lot of opposition as well, because there's a belief that you shouldn't send someone abroad when they're very young. Uh, there was a lot of talk of me at getting addicted to drugs. We can cut oh, this no. out of the podcast. <laughs> no, no. Uh, but yeah, so there was a lot of like general mass Anxiety. hysteria on what would happen. And they were just like, no, I think this is right. Wow. Yeah. Too good. Good parents. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, as a debut writer, mm. uh, Tashan, so like you have studied writing and, you know, but I'm sure it wasn't easy when you began. So we just wanted to know about your publishing journey. Like, was it easy when you, you know, finished writing The Liar's Weave? And how did you go about getting it actually published? Um, so I think luck played a very large role, and that's important. I sent out my book to a couple of publishing houses. Uh, Siva Priya picked it up in Juggernaut, mm. and I think she started reading it, and she kind of liked it. But what was more interesting is that they had hired Indra Pramit Das as commissioning editor. Oh, um, the author that you said The author that I yeah. recommended of The Devourers. And he was part of the speculative fiction tradition, but now he had an inside seat in a publishing house, right? And I just got exceptionally lucky because he picked it up and he fell in love with it. And he pushed it. He pushed it with like very effusive and very kind praise. Indra is just a lovely human being. Um, and that's why I think The Liar's Weave was allowed to be published with very little editorial interference. Like he was very respectful of what I wanted to do. He was very brilliantly nurturing in a lot of ways. And I think both Sivapriya and Chiki Sarkar, everyone was just very kind in championing a book forward and putting it forward. That being said, I think that the experience of being published itself is very strange. Really? <laughs> it's like some sort of distorted alternate reality because you split from you, the person who's been staring right. in front of your blank page, um, to author Tashan, who's yes. suddenly talking at lit fests or, fests or doing podcasts or discussing her book or reading reviews about her book. And there's this sort of split dissonance because at the end of the day, mm. you still have to go back to the blank page. <laughs> and no matter how kind the outside world is, the blank page is not kind. Yeah. Uh, I like that line. Yeah. yeah. So I feel like it, I found that quite strange, what it meant to be an author in the public world and what it means to be an author in the quiet of your room in front of a blank page and writing. Did it change how you write at all? No, it didn't actually. Um, I learned to be... Someone said this to me about the third book and I think it's a very valuable line. I'd had a really large writing setback happen to me and I was very upset. And it's Helen Marshall. She's also a speculative fiction writer. And she said to me, 
you have the luxury right now of having no one else in your head but yourself as you write this book. And you don't understand how that is actually a luxury. The ability to just have what you think and what you want on that page and that freedom and that space where no one is looking at you and just you being able to do it was hugely transformative for that book. That's so rare. I mean, even in yeah. real life, you always have people yeah. giving you their opinions exactly. and unsolicited advice. Absolutely. So that ability to carve out that mental space and keep it for yourself, I've learned to... Instead of seeing it as a curse, which you do as an author unpublished, right? You're always like, I want people to tell me about it. I started seeing it as this safe space. Um, and I started treating that a little bit more carefully than I would have before being published, I think. Uh, but other than that, it may have changed the writing space in the sense that it's made me braver. Like yeah. having conversations like, yeah, yeah, having conversations like these or interacting with readers. It just makes me feel like, okay, some of you understand where I'm going. So this can be fun and I can keep doing and, it. And it must be so wonderful to have your words touch so many people. That's the, yeah. Oh, guys, if you ever like anything anyone ever writes in the history of the universe, write them an email. They will yes. not think it's an imposition. It will transform their day and they will save it <laughs> and they will reread it for when writing goes bad, which is very often. So please just do it if you're ever on the fence about That's it. That's good advice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I believe that too. Yeah. yeah. And I think like, you know, with the net and with the ease of communication, people should just do it. Like, Absolutely. It's not like the olden days you send a post and you don't know if yeah, you know, it's going to arrive yeah. or not. So, yeah. It makes a real difference. It really, really does. So, how long did it actually take you to write your first book, Tasha? It took me, I think, um, five years. Wow. Five years. I started The Liar's Weave as a dissertation in um, Warwick. Oh. Uh, it was my dissertation, yeah. Uh, that was the first chapter. And then I worked on it uh, for a while until I got a complete fourth draft out, I think. And then there was a year while I was shopping for a publisher and then I did a couple of other drafts with Indra. So I think up until the point it finally hit shells, it was about five years. Wow. I just am very interested and mm. fascinated. How did you have the gumption to stick by it for so long? Yes. <laughs> it does. And that commitment. Because at some point it becomes a, it becomes like an acting job. Because you've put on another hat and you're writing another book and you're looking somewhere else and someone's like, can you come here and can you come back to this novel and edit it? And then you just have to learn to kind of swap hats. Mm. Author Tasha doing this book, <laughs> author Tasha doing that book. Um, and I think that that was an interesting learning curve. But I think that once you have an idea out there and you put it out there, you do want to just see it to completion. So the sticking by it wasn't actually that hard. Um, it was a bit tough in the middle where I didn't know if it was going anywhere and I wanted to put it away. But I think more often than not, if the idea is good enough, it kind of like this second book that will never get done, guys. And also, I would like to know, like, because it took you five years, mm. like, how do you keep the tone consistent? Because mm. I feel like, you know, if today I'm in this frame of mind, just mm. even five months down the line, it's a different frame of mind. So in five years, how do you know that the book actually sounds the same like when you began it or, you know? I don't know, actually. I'll be very honest. I don't know if it does sound the same. Sometimes I read parts of it and go, this is so obviously written more recently and this is so obviously written oh, before. I think that's something only you can Oh, tell. yeah, only I'd yeah. be able to tell. So it's very hard for me to know if I've achieved the tone because there's so much memory attached to when everything was written and how it was written. Uh, maybe if I revisit The Liars Weave in 10 years, I'll have forgotten and been like, ah, this is consistent. Um, but more often than not, you do actively try. You try not to jar up the styles too much yeah. so that it reads as a whole. 
So yeah, so you know, we've spoken a lot about what speculative fiction is mm. and the themes that you've explored. So we just wanted to know: Are you going to be playing around? Are you interested in playing around with other genres? So I want to say yes. The second novel was originally imagined as a historical um, fiction novel. And I'm currently playing around with the idea of nonfiction because I've learned that there's so many exciting things to write about in terms of the space of concepts um, and theory. But actually, currently as a fiction genre, speculative fiction is just so vast. I can do anything I want. I can take historical, I can take magic realism, I can take slipstream, I can mix everything up and it will just perform a book. It is the one genre essentially that gives me no rules. And I think currently I'm really enjoying that. So I won't be able to say whether or not for the future what I would experiment with. I won't put that off the table. But right now the largesse and the freedom of speculative fiction cannot be beaten for me. Yeah, actually, I mean, if you have something that you have so much freedom in, why would you restrict yourself? Yeah. yeah it makes so much sense. Yeah. Like, I didn't think about that before. It Honestly, the the best thing about speculative fiction is you can do anything. It's right. one of those terms they give you when they don't know what's really happening. Yeah. Um, but I do want to make sure I never bore myself because I think right. writing is only interesting as long as it's fun. Yeah. So if I ever do switch to another genre, it will be because it gives me rules and I need to challenge myself a little bit more. So like if you, uh, you know, talk about the speculative fiction genre, Tashan, like, you know, there are very few magazines out there mm. which actually uh, promote this work. So one is Mithila Review, which we really like. Mm. So what advice would you give, you know, young writers who are looking to publish their work online or, you know, to build a profile before they come out with uh, their book? I would say first off, reach out to the speculative fiction community. Samit Basu is always a great starting point. He's been brilliant and he's kind of the father of speculative fiction in India. Um, reach out to that community. We're more than happy to help as much as possible and lend a hand as much as possible. So first, identify yourself with the community and reach out for support. Secondly, there are avenues that are being published. There is obviously Mithila Review. But of course, there's an ecosystem abroad as well that isn't restricted to just the US or the UK or Australia and that is looking at fiction from all over the world. So there's Strange Horizons, hmm. there's Fireside. Lightspeed, I believe. Yeah, Lightspeed is a huge one. Uh, there's Clark's World as well. There's just a large ecosystem out there. I would try and keep applying to them. Don't be discouraged if you're rejected. It's just a learning curve. So just keep applying, just keep writing and keep applying because the only way you really know is by practicing. Also, I would be very honest, don't be disheartened by talks of speculative fiction being a genre that isn't read very much in India or a niche genre, because I think speculative fiction itself is becoming more and more central to how we view the world. Mm -hmm. Most of what is happening in TV right now is speculative. A lot of what is happening in terms of predicting the future is calling on speculative fiction writers. Scientists are trying to collaborate with speculative fiction writers. So work on what you're doing in form and imagination and don't be too bothered in any box someone tries to put you in. That makes Be sense. Yeah. yeah, because the world is changing. So I wouldn't worry about That's that. That's very encouraging. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And do you think that uh, the perception towards speculative fiction is is improving? I hope so. I really <laughs> hope so. I still think I still think that people think it's the stuff of TV shows and that doesn't really belong in a novel. I think science fiction had an idea of being extremely commercial once upon a time and then mm -hmm. that just kind of brushed speculative fiction with that same um, idea. And I'm not... I'm not sure that that's true. More often than not, a publisher will try not to market a work as speculative fiction if they feel it has more literary appeal, which I don't think is 
necessary, but I understand why they do it because of those markets. But a lot of the literary work that is being praised is speculative fiction. Yeah, like we have now Leela by Prayag Akbar and yeah. you know, like yeah. Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, yeah exactly. of course, Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. But no one would call Handmaid's Tale speculative fiction <laughs> exactly. until it was made into a TV show. And then they had to look at it and go, oh, it was speculative fiction. Um, so it's just a question of labels at some point. Okay. And like, would you tell us three Western speculative fiction writers that you would recommend or that you'd like? So I really love Ken Liu. Um, I loved his short story collection, uh, The Paper Menagerie and Other Stories. There are some really deeply powerful ones in terms of how he handles emotion. So I highly recommend him. I would recommend Ted Chiang. Um, we read him recently. Yeah, yeah. his story, Exhalation. Yeah, yeah so Exhalation. Cool. And he has the one, the story of your life, the one yes. before that. Um, the I, movie. The movie, yeah. And then the yeah. book collection yeah. from it. I think he's one of those very few people that takes extremely tough, dense, interconnected ideas and works them out in a story. And they are actually thought experiments. And I think there needs to be a lot more literature that does that mm. rather than just focuses on feelings and making you experience something. So I think that's really powerful. Um, and if we're talking about Western writers, because my mind is blanked out, but also because she's brilliant, Helen Marshall. Uh, she's released a book called Migration. But the one I'm really, really gunning for, which is not released as yet, but I've read a draft of, is oh. her second novel, um, which is absolutely brilliant. And I'll let you guys know when it's out. Oh, that's wow. great. Yeah, mm-hmm. Lots yeah. of recommendations, yeah. <laughs> I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so now we're going to be moving on to our rapid fire <laughs> wow. round, which is not as intense <laughs> as the name suggests. We're just going to be asking you a few questions. This sounds very intense, guys. <laughs> very intense, but okay. So if it wasn't writing, what would it be? Cooking. Oh, I'd love to be a chef. <laughs> and uh, you moved to uh, Goa recently. So is it Mumbai or Goa? Goa, 100% Goa. My God, eyes closed. Not even a question. Okay, your favorite place to write? Um, actually in bed in Goa with the window open so I can see the scenery and hear the birds um, and drink Pasi chai, which is tea with mint and lemongrass. It's great. Oh, yeah, very specific answer. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I've been doing it a lot recently. So thank you so much for talking to us, Tashan. Like uh, we had a lot of fun and there were a lot of takeaways. Like, you know, you should enjoy your writing because uh, unless it's fun for you, it won't be fun for the reader yeah. and so much and more. keep at it. Yeah, yeah keep yeah. at it always. Yeah. Yeah. Like so many more takeaways and just, and you know, we got to understand the speculative fiction genre better after talking to you. Thank you so much. I've had just the yeah. most brilliant time. This was time. really fun. There were so many insights in that conversation and not everybody speaks about rejection. That was my favorite part of the conversation. What about you, Michelle? Yeah, I mean, same here because, you know, honestly, writing is not easy. I mean, it's one of the most unpredictable journeys anyone can take. And I loved that honesty about Tashan. So next time, we're going to be speaking to another great woman writer. She has co-written a book with the veteran journalist Hussain Zaidi. And she has written a brilliant new novel called Bombay Balchao, which is about a small Catholic neighborhood in South Bombay. And so we can't wait to speak to her to find out how she did it, how she created the stories of these communities and her writing journey. So stay tuned for our next episode. And please do feel free to reach out to us if you have any feedback. We are on Insta, Facebook and Twitter at Bound India. And also for any book recommendations, if you have anything that you want us to read or any guests that you want us to interview, do reach out. Always. <laughs>